0: so that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Sean. It's wonderful to have you join us all the way from Tokyo.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So what time is it in Tokyo?
1: It is 6.30 in the morning.
0: 6.30 in the morning. You are an early bird. You Get up early to cover the news. I can see that.
1: <laughs> the hazards of most of the things I cover happening outside of the country I live in.
0: So I'm going to get straight into it because I think we've got a very exciting conversation that's going to take place. So a few weeks ago, I was reading the Wall Street Journal. I always start my day reading the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. It's you know a ritual in my house. Everyone does it. And I came across this article that you and your colleague put together, Nick Kostov, where you talked about, it was, I think it may have been an extract from the book Boundless, but it talked about what happened with the whole saga that was going on in Japan and so on, you know, the famous Carlos. And one of the things that struck me is how little the world knew about one of the most famous CEOs in the world. And when I read that article, I thought, my God, this is one of the most interesting things I've ever read. And I think more people need to understand someone who had so much power, but so little was known about it. So my my starting point for you is how did you figure out there was another story there?
2: Well,
1: that's an excellent question, and it really gets to why we ultimately decided to write a book. So our book is boundless, as you mentioned, about yeah. the the career uh, of Carlos Ghosn, his rise, his fall, and ultimately, as you referenced, his escape. And it struck Nick and I as we reported this story over many years that. It was just absolutely baffling that Carlos Ghosn was one of the most public figures in the world. You know, he was on every evening news broadcast. He was the face of Davos. He ran two of the most recognizable car brands in the world, Renault and Nissan. But nobody knew anything about him. Uh, Carlos Ghosn had very few people close to him. He was very closely guarded about his private life. Yeah, And it stunned Nick and I as we were writing this book that Carlos Ghosn's father had been arrested for murder in Lebanon when Carlos Ghosn was six years old. And it's just absolutely stunning that something uh, that was freely available in the public uh, was just unknown for his entire career. So there was very little that was known about how he worked in his private life probably would have remained unknown had he not been suddenly arrested on charges of of corporate finance misdeeds in 2018.
0: So when you started exploring his life, these interesting pieces compelled you to keep searching? Or did you feel that there was something that could be wrong, for lack of a better word, in in terms of what he was doing?
2: Well,
1: it's a bit of both, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, what drove us to write the book is that we were struggling in 800 to 1,000, 2,000, you know, even 3,000 word news stories to really express all the context that helps you yes. understand
2: you we got here.
1: Sure. Yeah. <laughs> the Wall Street Journal, we have the toughest in the business. Yeah. And you really can't understand how a man who literally went from a small town in the Amazonian rainforest to the cor- heights of the corporate world. Yes. Um, and then was sort of ended his career in infamy. And thus, he really understood the whole sweep of his life. Yes. That thing along those ways. Because ultimately, what happened with Carlos Ghosn is you have a highly successful, probably one of the most effective and well-regarded corporate executives of our generation who threw his legacy away chasing you know a couple tens of millions of dollars and that was just a baffling thing and a difficult thing to convey in a series of news articles and and really you don't get to the bottom of it until you put it together in a book and that's what we've done here and i think once you really step back and look at his his entire life you really understand the motivations and both his virtues and his uh his flaws that sort of shaped his decision-making.
0: Yeah, there's there's two things that struck me when I read the book and obviously your reporting in the Wall Street Journal. The book, I feel, was necessary because you could just never capture that depth in your articles. There was no way you would get the space to actually do that. But the two points that jumped out at me was, you know, I used to be a strategy partner in my previous life. So I obviously know many CEOs and captains of industry. But then it got me thinking, how well do we really know them? Because we only know what they choose to share with us. Uh, private lives are kept private. We don't really know what's happening. We assume the board's doing all the necessary checks and you know all the 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 necessary steps have been put in place. But when you, when you read what happened with uh, Carlos, there seemed to have been in a whole system set up to move money that no one had picked up on. How could it have gone on for so long?
1: So there's a couple questions there's a couple questions in there. And to start with the first one about CEOs in general. You're right. Most CEOs are seen as these sort of larger than life figures. Yeah, you know, machinery of corporate PR, you know, firms and outside PR firms, you know, sort of create this story of who this person is, and they become a series of sound bites. There are some exceptions. You know, some CEOs excel at being a more personable and more human. Yes, I think Carlos Ghosn was was the very opposite extreme, where where he his His entire image was his management style. Yeah. Um, You know, Carlos Ghosn was a superhero, superhuman CEO who could operate two Fortune 500 companies at the same time, operated by half the planet. You know, he ran this special sort of corporate structure called the Renault Nissan Alliance that was not a merger, but a, a partnership of sort of mutual self interest. And there was just a lot of, sort of themes of, of globalization and, and diversity and sort of good corporate governance that nice. Carlos Ghosn sort of embodied as, as a person. And we came to sort of identify the sound bites with his personality. There's obviously a real human behind all of these corporate images that are put out there. And I think it was a rare opportunity to have a situation like this where something so crazy yeah, you know, had happened that people were willing to sort of pull back the curtain and share a lot more about the person himself. And I, I you know, it, there's a lot to Carlos Ghosn's story that is not unique in terms of how they came to be the person they are. And there's a lot of qualities uh, to CEOs that make them, for lack of a better word, slightly eccentric, not like you and yeah. I, that I'm sure are, are universal across all CEOs. And so there's a lot, I think, people can learn about the good qualities as well as the things to watch out for in your your corporate leaders in this book. But then to get to the second part of your question, uh, which is how something like this happened for so long. And there, the answer lies a lot in the corporate governance of Nissan and Renault and the alliance and sort of corporate governance norms in Japan. yeah. So I guess I I need I should back up and explain exactly what he was accused of doing. Yes. So Carlos Ghosn was arrested in November 2018 as he stepped off his private jet on the way to a board meeting on accusations that he had, over a period of 10 years, understated his compensation in corporate filings uh, by half, by
2: 50%. Okay.
1: And... The actual mechanism of that is a bit weird and might strike a lot of our readers or listeners rather in uh, the US and Europe is an odd accusation. So he was accused of secretly formulating uh, deals with a number of his aides within yes. Nissan to postpone a portion of his compensation to defer it until after retirement, uh, by which he would have been allowed to avoid disclosure because yes. Carlos Ghosn had taken a pay cut in 2010 to avoid having to disclose his full compensation out of concern of the public backlash he would face in uh, Japan and France. Now, Carlos Ghosn's defense at that portion of the criminal charges and his co-defendant, a man named Greg Kelly, former Nissan executive and head of uh, HR, was at they had been considering a number of ways to compensate Goan after retirement for consulting work and advisory work, but none of those pay plans had been uh, finalized. And so the debate here was whether or not those drafts of compensation plans were for work he'd done as a head of Nissan or not. There was a weird sort of charge to start off with. But then there were a number of other charges related to his, Carlos Ghosn's relationship with two uh, you continue, members. Sean, Go before ahead. you
0: continue, just for the audience, the crime he was charged for is deferring his compensation, which is illegal in Japan because he was actually understating his income.
2: So yeah, let
1: me be more specific here. He was charged with deferring his compensation and not disclosing it. Okay, so in Japan, it. the law was that you had to disclose the compensation in the year for which it was set. Okay, right. So it, say in 2011, the company said, we're going to pay you $10 million 10 years from now. You would have to disclose that amount in 2011 under Japanese law. Yes. Uh, so again, I'm not sure that this would be a criminal act in a lot of jurisdictions where your listeners are. But that was criminal allegation, the first one. Yes. There were a number of other ones that are a lot easier to understand. And the reason why this first charge was allowed to go undetected for so long was a sort of quirk of uh, the corporate governance of Nissan. So normally at a company, at a publicly held company, the individual or individuals who set the compensation of senior executives at a company are board members. Yes. Well, in Japan, uh, until very recently, the board members were basically the senior executives of the company. There very little difference in the membership there. Yes, And at Nissan, the board had divested their authority to set the compensation of, of those board directors to Carlos Ghosn.
0: Wait, I just they're... want to be clear about this, right? Okay. It's a bit fantastical that the board delegated the setting of compensation to the person whose compensation needs to be set?
1: Yes, Carlos Ghosn determined how much he was paid, and only Carlos Ghosn knew how much he was paid because the board had given him that authority.
0: That so is very unusual, I think we can agree, right? Well, that's unusual,
1: and it's why nobody knew how much Carlos Ghosn was paid, and Carlos Ghosn liked it that way. Yeah, And why? And there was a sort of a key moment in the Carlos Ghosn story in 2010. Japan changed the rules about executive compensation in the sort of midst of the financial crisis and the backlash against, you know, sort of executive compensation that came out yeah. all across the world at that time. And at that time, they decided that anybody who made more than a roughly a million dollars in Japan would have to let shareholders and the public know how much they earned. Carlos Ghosn was very vehemently opposed to this idea. The time he was making, I mean, depends on exchange rates, but between like 18 to $20 million US, that puts him in the upper echelons of sort of automotive CEO pace. So certainly not the top by any means, yes. but it was up there and it was all, by and large, cash compensation. And so right before the law comes out, Carlos Ghosn returns a portion of his previous year's salary because the law was retroactive Yeah, and and basically takes a 50% pay cut. And so a lot of the actions that get him in trouble from that point are efforts by Carlos Ghosn to figure out a way to not take a 50% pay cut, but also yeah. not have to tell shareholders And the public, and not have to defend that compensation in public,
0: and also not pay taxes on it.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I guess, but it depends on what the money was, right? Like, he paid, he paid taxes, and frankly, his compensation included very generous gross ups for global taxation. Um, So I'm not sure he would have taken the hit. (laughs) He had to pay tax on his. So
0: all of this, not to avoid taxes, just to avoid the backlash.
1: Correct. Okay. It was it was it was a public image thing. Again, this goes back to I guess briefly what we touched upon about you know the legend of Carlos Ghosn. If you want to call yes. the sort of the PR sort of ma- machinery about the CEO, their legend, Carlos Ghosn had built a reputation of frugality and yes, cost cutting yes, yeah. and keen eye on the bottom lines and. There was just going to be this disclosure of, not by global standards, unusual compensation, but certainly by Japanese standards, a very eye-opening amount of money. And even at 50%, when he he ultimately disclosed his salary, he was still by far the highest paid CEO in Japan. And there was a bit of a backlash. And I, I don't know if all your listeners are familiar with the cultures of France and Japan.
0: It's very surprising to me this could have happened in Japan. Well, yes
1: and no. I mean, in Japan, there are, in, in Japanese companies, and actually Carlos Ghosn has said this in public himself in sort of retrospectives of his time at Nissan before the arrest happened, after he had sort of stepped back as CEO and just became chairman. Carlos Ghosn credited his success at Nissan in large part to the deference that members of a company showed towards their leader. You know, yes. Carlos Ghosn said, "Wherever Japanese I told them to country. march, basically they they would go in that direction." You know, yeah. everybody moved in accordance to what the leader said, and he considered that a great privilege. It is true, looking at you know his life as we sort of write it in his book, that Carlos Ghosn got what Carlos Ghosn wanted from Nissan, in part because of his uh, track record of basically saving the company from bankruptcy yes. in 1999. And also, you know, a significant series of wins over 20 years at the top of that company. You know, he took them from borderline bankruptcy to becoming one of the most profitable and, and one of the largest car makers in the world. And there just seemed to be this air of Carlos Ghosn knows what's right. He's done what's right in the past. He's on our side. And therefore, we can leave him to his own devices. And that's the aspect of sort of Japanese corporate governance that I think was problematic in the Carlos Ghosn case, because there is so much deference paid to the leader and this sort of, you know, we've got a direction to go in, so everybody better get in line and move in the direction so we get there. Um, That works so long as the person in charge is doing the right thing for the right reasons. And I think that's part of the reason why there was such a backlash against Carlos Ghosn, who went from being... You know, one of the great heroes to one of its greatest villains in Japan, because there was this perception in Japan that he had taken the company's funds and assets and just the machinery of the company and the employees' lives and used them for his own private gain.
0: Yeah, it basically abused the trust.
1: Yeah, it it was one of the extra charges was a breach of trust. Um, And that was what really hit his reputation here. But again, the reason why it was allowed to occur and the reason why nobody knew about it or very few people knew about it was because they had divested all oversight and decision making to Carlos Ghosn's person when it came to compensation.
0: Okay. The more obvious question. But so at the time, what had he done illegally?
1: Well, that is a difficult question that maybe we'll never get the answer to because he isn't going to stand trial. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like, You know, it is a bit of a minefield to try to say what he did was or was not illegal. Well, it, there were clearly some PR optic
0: issues yeah, which I agree with. But it's important to know what he did that was wrong. I'm not saying that you have the answers. Yeah. You'll never know. But what has he been accused of doing that's illegal?
1: Right. So what he was accused of doing illegally was one, the pay issue. But yeah. then there was a second set of charges that came out after his arrest. That frankly the evidence for which only came to light because of his arrest okay. so when he was arrested nissan had teams of lawyers either in-house lawyers and one of their outside law firms lawyers around the world ready to pounce on carlos Ghosn's properties in various yes. cities and the thought was that Uh, There is probably a host of evidence of further wrongdoing out there, or at least evidence to back up what we're looking at right now, which is the compensation side of things. And in Lebanon, there is a Nissan dealer called Rimco. And in Rimko's office, Carlos Ghosn's secretary, where he, he maintained an office there in Beirut, where the Ghosn family's yes. ancestral home is. And that secretary used to work for Carlos Ghosn's personal lawyer, a man named Fadi Jabran. And Fadi Gibran had passed away a number of years ago, but she still had a hard drive that contained all of her work for Carlos Ghosn at that time. And Nissan Lawyer seized that. And in that, they obtained a massive trove of communications between Carlos Ghosn, this lawyer, and this lawyer and a number of individuals in the Middle East that showed movement of funds between those Middle Eastern people and Carlos Ghosn. And then an investigation ensued to see if there was any connection between that money that went to Carlos
2: Ghosn
1: and monies to Nissan and monies to Renault. And the reason why that connection was was being looked into is because the person who was providing the funds to Carlos Ghosn was a Nissan and Renault distributor in the Middle East, a man named Suhail Mm Bawan. So... That quickly became a—they called it a breach of trust charge—but ultimately was what uh, you and I would probably know of as theft or a kickback, where the allegation was that Nissan and Renault, well, at this time the investigation was only about Japan and Nissan. Yes, but they had sent millions of dollars worth of incentives to this person, to this person's business in Muscat, Oman, to you know help build out the uh, the dealership. And you yes. know, incentivize vehicle sales, but then about fifty million dollars between Renault and Nissan was sent from this Omani businessman and his associates into Carlos Ghosn's bank accounts.
2: So that's the kickback.
1: That's the kickback portion. That it was these these bonuses were bogus, according to the prosecutors and the companies, um, and that they were ba- and that the dealerships was merely a a route through which to transfer money to Carlos Ghosn. And he used this money to, uh, among other things, uh, buy a yacht. And uh, because every story of corporate malfeasance needs a good yacht. Yes. And also to invest in Silicon Valley with his young son. So the allegation was that this was theft. Carlos Ghosn maintains that the funds were not Renault and Nissan money. And this is something that would be hashed out in a court of law. But to me, even if we never learn, whether or not Carlos Ghosn is guilty of a charge of breach of trust in Japan. Yes. It still raises, you know, sort of really interesting questions that we examine in the book, like why Carlos Ghosn thought it was a good idea to take $50 million from his business partner at his the companies he ran and use it to buy a yacht and run a sort of private side enterprise.
2: Yes.
0: So, and it doesn't seem that, like a lot of money. I mean, it's only $50 million relative to... Well,
1: relative especially if you think of the cost to him personally. Yes. Right? So Carlos Ghosn was like a shoe-in for the Automotive Hall, Hall of Fame. You know, he's talked about in the same you know conversation, in the same breath as like Lee Iacocca, you know, Bob Lutz. Yes. Um, you know, the sort of the greats of the Sergio Marchioni, the greats of the automotive industry. And now everybody... He's going to remember him first and foremost, not for what he accomplished as a CEO, but what he did as a criminal suspect, which was to uh, flee Japan by hiding in a box aboard yes. a private jet.
0: That's, that is going to be the, the soundbite that's going to define him.
1: Yeah. And, you know, in the end, like $50 million is objectively a lot of money, but that is a huge cost to pay.
0: Yes. And, he, and I believe he cannot leave lebanon at this point
1: no he can't not without risking arrest because you know he is in lebanon uh, in large part because that country does not extradite its citizens and he is mm-hmm. a citizen of of lebanon brazil and france and so he will risk arrest and deportation to either france or japan if he uh, if he leaves that country But bit of napoleon and elba to the carlos tale.
0: Yes. So I want to lay out what I've heard so the audience is able to follow us, okay? Sure. Because it's it's an interesting story. And there's a lot of moving pieces here that are still moving. So you've got the CEO of one of the most respected CEOs in the world, who is legally allowed to set his own compensation. But he sets up a scheme whereby he basically wants to take half his compensation and report it and defer his compensation until later. and that The problem there is that he needs to report his full compensation, which he's not doing, but it doesn't look like it's a big tax savings. On the other hand, he seems to have taken a kickback of about $50 million that we know of from a business partner. You know, Mark, stepping out of the very interesting, you know, saga of Carlos Ghosn and, and what he did, look at Japan here a little bit. Mm. Is this likely to prompt reforms in corporate governance in Japan? Or do you feel that... The way the Japanese would look at this is to say, well, Carlos Ghosn was never Japanese. We should have had a Japanese CEO. What do you think is likely to happen in corporate Japan as a result of this?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I I think there was a lot of talk at the time of the need to reform the way boards are structured in Japan and and oversight of, of corporate leaders in Japan in the wake of his arrest. And a lot of talk about reforming the Japanese justice system, which we can get into a bit too. Yes. If we look at what's happened to just Nissan since Carlos Ghosn's arrest, uh, since his arrest, they have overhauled the board layout to add a lot more independent board directors outside yes. and independent board directors with the yes. thought that independent oversight of management would have avoided a lot of the, at least the compensation side of things. So there is some change that has come. And I think a lot of corporations are are adding outside board directors, but they're adding the bare minimum, whatever the, the government and regulators have decided they need to add, which I think is one third of board members need to be outside directors. And I think in some cases, you know, there's a bit of a fig leaf on these these outside and independent directors, whether or not you, they would normally be seen that way. So. Japan's not a country that changes easily or quickly. I would not be surprised if 10 years from now, little had changed in terms of how companies do business in Japan. And I still think that there is a bit of resistance to shareholder and outsider oversight on management decisions. I mean, the, the thinking here is very much, you know, the people making the operational decisions should be left to make the operational decisions because they're the closest to the ground. Why should some person who has no expertise on what exactly we do at a sort of uh, granular level, be allowed to sort of dictate strategy and and decision-making. Yes. And look, Japan had many, and Japanese companies for many years a great success uh, and still have great success in our our extremely well-run organizations. But what was clear from the Carlos Ghosn saga is the reason why there is oversight of management decisions is because somebody always has to be watching.
0: Yeah. So coming back into the story of Carlos Ghosn and his role here, someone had to come forward to say he was allegedly doing these things. So someone had to break out of this Japanese culture of showing reverence to elders and so on. But my question is more around the sourcing for this book. Given the culture and how people are so hesitant to speak up, how did you go about getting the sources to back up everything?
1: Uh, Very carefully. (laughs) like, Like, look, like, Reporting out, even in the news stories, reporting out something like this uh, is extremely difficult. And without being able to get into too many details, uh, what I can say is that we talk to people with direct and intimate knowledge of a lot of the things for which Carlos Ghosn was accused. And we obtained a number of documents, a number being a very broad term for uh, the large stack of paperwork in my office, and in my house, and I'm sure in Nick's place in Paris, that sort of backs up a lot of the things that are in this book. And a lot of the stuff, most of the stuff, in the book is backed up by documents. There's a lot of stuff that we had heard, and you know, sort of yes. it's, that was probably true. That we, we were heard related to us, but we tried to stick to the stuff that we could back up with documents.
0: So people came forward, they told their side, but they were also able to corroborate it with documents. That is correct. And what has happened to those people that that? Exposed all of this. Are they heroes or not?
1: That it's a sort of a large group of people, and yeah. let me break them out into categories. So one of Carlos Ghosn's avenues of attack against his accusers at Nissan, in particular, was that their actions were driven by a desire to stop a merger between Renault and Nissan that Ghosn had been planning. Yes, and that was true—that a group of Nissan executives. Uh, started a secret investigation against Gone with the desire or motivated out of the desire to oust him from the company and push him from the company because he was planning a merger that they felt they couldn't stop. Yes. That was the genesis of this. Now, what they turned up was way more than they. That they initially thought was there. Uh, they were looking at the the compensation th- side of things, and frankly, at the time, a lot of attention was being paid to a handful of properties that Nissan had purchased for Carlos Ghosn's use in uh, Brazil and Lebanon. Uh, a couple of multi-million dollar company uh, piece of properties, including one that was renovated for over ten million dollars in Beirut, where Carlos Ghosn lives currently. And the money that was used for that was uh, came out of a VC company, a venture capital company that Nissan had set up to invest in Silicon Valley, but never ended up investing in Silicon Valley. It was just this pool of money sitting there that nobody yes. was paying attention to anymore. So there, that was the focus of the their secret investigation at first, and then a group of them uh, took that uh, the initial findings to Japanese prosecutors to see if it was a rose to the level of a criminal investigation. And the prosecutors in Japan said, we don't know, let's see what you find out over a period of several months. Yes. And, and ultimately it was the prosecutors who decided to go after going the compensation related side of things initially. And that's how we ended up with the surprise arrest in November. But the genesis was fears of a murder. Now, whether or not you would consider those people heroes, I think probably depends on whether, how you feel about the murder. Yes, if you're ambivalent about it, or if you're for or against, I think would probably shape your opinion there. Uh, for that group of people, it's quite interesting that in most corporate scandals, what ends up happening is that the board is informed, yeah, and and, and it starts in the board of directors and then may filter out to law enforcement after law enforcement gets on very. Very rarely do the people who are conducting the investigation sort of subvert the corporate governance of a company, yes, and put it in service of law enforcement. Where really, as you'll see in the book, you know the entire audit and compliance arm of a company and their law, their lawyers are put in service of a criminal invest, a secret criminal investigation in Carlos Ghosn. This is a very unusual scenario where. Instead of hiring a third party, an independent third party to conduct an investigation, it's really Nissan conducting an investigation in service of law enforcement in Japan. It's just a weird situation. Yeah, I've
0: never seen that before.
1: Neither had I. And then there's another group of people that that I would sort of broadly classify as the collateral damage in this whole uh, tale, one of which is is Carlos Ghosn's co-accused. On the compensation side of things, a man, an American named Greg Kelly, who was the only one to stand trial in the Carlos Ghosn case, and he was acquitted on all but one charge, ultimately, after three years in Japan, she was not able to travel home. And then there's dozens of people whose careers were either ended prematurely. You know, over upturned and then the companies themselves, I mean, I think both Renault and Nissan are roughly about 40% of the size that they were at the time Carlos Ghosn was arrested. There's huge amount, and tens of thousands of people were laid off, uh, over 10,000, I should say, not 10,000. Oh, so there 000, has
0: been over... damage to the companies as a result
1: Huge, huge damage to the companies as a result of this. So it's just been a lot of collateral damage as a result of the arrests and subsequent decisions to unravel uh, some of Carlos Ghosn's business strategies, uh, which has just been sort of a painful restructuring process and a lot of
0: layoffs and a lot of lost careers. So, in thinking about all of this, you have a situation where the board delegates the compensation to the CEO legally in this case. A group of employees investigate Carlos going to block a merger. They don't go to their own board, they go to the prosecutor's office in Japan. Mm-hmm. And then the prosecutor's office delegates the investigation to these employees to continue and see what they can find. What has the board been doing all of this time if its own employees are not going to them?
1: (laughs) I mean, look, the way that the people who conducted the secret investigation tell it is Carlos Ghosn had a rubber stamp board of directors and that they couldn't go to the board without risking their own careers, that they weren't convinced that the board would back them and support them and look into this. Whether or not they were right, we'll never know, right? Who knows? Yes. Well, what's clear and what is certainly comes out in the book is how much of Nissan and Renault and the entirety of that alliance was run through Carlos Ghosn and operated only because of Carlos Ghosn. There was this sort of fear that that permeated, you know, the, the senior levels of these alliance companies that if Carlos Ghosn ever went, you know, this whole mechanism could fall apart. And frankly, yes. the people who were working on and trying to get Carlos Ghosn money after retirement within the company were motivated out of a fear that Carlos Ghosn would disappear. Could you expand on yeah,
2: that? Yeah,
1: I, I should. So Carlos Ghosn had for a number of years talked about potentially retiring, and he had received job offers from many automakers, including GM and Ford. Yes. to to go work for others for a lot more money and so there was just this concern particularly within nissan that their greatest asset had taken a 50 percent pay cut here i'm speaking specifically about greg kelly and a, and a couple other people there was this concern that he, you know he took a massive pay cut and that he might walk as a result and if he does that nissan would lose its greatest executive but also the alliance would take a huge blow because the man who made it work uh, would be gone. And so there was this a lot of actions that were motivated by keeping Carlos Ghosn happy. Whatever Carlos Ghosn wanted, we should figure out a way to get it to him because he deserves it and we need him. Yes. There was a lot of uh, decision-making motivated by fear of what Carlos Ghosn might decide to do, should he become unhappy. Or leave. I I think, or leave. And they call that the key man problem, right? Yeah. So any company runs into that, if their man who's been running the company has been there for 20 years, any CEO reshapes the the company in their image the longer that they're there. Uh, But here it was also a bit more than that. And then it was a weird situation in the Alliance where Carlos Ghosn's authority at Nissan was that he ran Renault and Renault wanted a merger and Carlos Ghosn was the only person preventing that merger. And at Renault a large part of his his pull and influence came from the fact that he also ran Nissan and yes. Renault needed the Japanese company to be a, a willing business partner and Carlos Ghosn was the only one that kept the Japanese from just picking up their toys and leaving the sandbox and just sort of going off to do their own thing. So there is just this image that Carlos Ghosn was the linchpin that held the whole thing together that allowed him to stay at the top for as long as he did. And Because, you know, there's a lot of talk, certainly in the latter half of his time at the Alliance, you know, about who's going to come after Carlos Ghosn, that that he never really had uh, a successor. Yeah. And that, you know, likely successors kept leaving to go work for somebody else if Carlos Ghosn wasn't going somewhere or Carlos Ghosn fell out with them. So there was always a question of who would come next. And part of the reason that Carlos Ghosn was planning the merger was one, as we were in the book, that he would have become a very rich man. But two, that it was this acknowledgement that the alliance relied so much on his ability to run two companies simultaneously, and that's not a real expectation for anybody else. And frankly, as we also we report in the book, for him either. There was a lot yes. of sort of kabuki theater about, you know, his supposed ability to run two companies at once. But part of the merger was to sort of bring the two companies together and make it look more like one company so that one person could run it.
0: So this is very interesting because the analysis you presented here is looking at how the other actors benefited as a result of what Carlos was doing. And it was in the interest of many of these actors for Carlos to keep doing what he was doing. But at the same time, the way you described it is the way you describe any autocratic government in the world. There's one man at the top. And he sets it up in such a way that he cannot be replaced.
1: Yeah, look, and I think there's been a lot of accusations in the wake of Carlos Ghosn's arrest that he was this greedy dictator. And and Carlos Ghosn takes great umbrage at that sort of characterization. And he has a point in one respect. So Carlos Ghosn's defense of himself in, in terms of whether or not he was a dictator or not. Was that he never really forced anybody to work together or to do anything on his behalf yes and that is certainly true in some cases what problematic and one of the reasons why renault and nissan today after 20 years uh despite promises to do so share very few parts between their vehicles was because Carlos Go never had this mandate that they work together, that you know they find operational synergies, as they would put it. Yeah, and the reason why there was no merger for so long is that Carlos Go never forced them to do it, even though it made sense in his mind increasingly as the years went by. But I think anybody who's been at the top for that long and who has a track record and the power base that he had within a company, like he was clearly the man in yeah. charge, there was no other. Who was the sort of ultimate arbiter of what that company was going to do strategy-wise and operationally? Like it was Carlos Gohn. Like, and if you want to call that a dictator, then yeah, I think that's objectively true.
0: Well, let's leave aside the dictator term, because I think there's a more interesting storyline here. You've mm-hmm. got Carlos Gone, who's the CEO of two companies, and you've got a basically a board that doesn't I don't know anything about the board, but they don't seem to operate like a board no so, that's
1: that's that's accurate,
0: <laughs> so, so it would be fair to say that everything that is happening is what he wants to happen because he's the only one with the power to make things happen,
1: yeah, that's fair, yeah, he was the man undoubtedly in charge, and the entire operations of the the h r arm was devoted to keeping Carlos going happy in at the, the company
0: so I've got to ask the most. Pressing question. Has the board been replaced or changed in any way since all of this happened?
1: Uh, the board at Nissan has. Now, I mean, look, there's there's two different stories here. I mean, the board at Nissan has been almost entirely replaced. There are a few mm-hmm. holdovers from the previous board. There were two outside directors who were pre Carlos Ghosn, uh, pre arrest, that are still there. And then there was one sort of what they call statutory auditor yeah. who is now a, f- a full fledged uh, board member there are holdovers. At Renault, they always had what you would normally consider, uh, at least what we would normally consider a board of directors. And so that hasn't changed as much.
0: And in terms of this merger, was Carlos in favor of the merger or not? My guess is not because he didn't push it through.
1: It's a it's a funny thing. I mean, Carlos Ghosn was very public until about 2015, 2016. Yes. And certainly to 20, you know, early 2018 is when it really starts to change um, against a merger. He always said it doesn't work. You know, there's a whole litany of failed attempts at merging the automotive industry. Uh, You know, how am I going to take a quintessentially French company and a quintessentially Japanese company and push them together and try to make them into a single entity? It's not going to work. So he claimed. Yes. Um, One big thing happened in early 2018 which is that his mandate at uh, Renault was up for renewal. And Renault's largest shareholder is the French state. And the French state had pushed forever for Carlos Ghosn to do something about succession and also to work towards a merger. And Carlos Ghosn had always resisted that, but he, for a variety of reasons, had very little leverage at this time. And so he accepts both mandates and starts working actively towards the merger. And that I think is what really turned the group of individuals against Carlos Ghosn within Nissan, who started the investigation that a lot of Carlos Ghosn's authority, as I mentioned before, stemmed from not only his saving of the company 20 years ago, but also because he was a bulwark against French desires for a merger between Renault and Nissan. And when Carlos Ghosn uh, began working on the merger and uh, a lot of anonymously sourced articles began appearing in the press around the world that the two were considering a merger, that's when really the tide turned and the investigation really took off.
0: When you first read the story of Carlos Ghosn and what happened, it's easy to quickly pull out who's the villain and who's not the villain. But as you go deeper into the story and the excellent reporting you and Nick did and the book... It seems as if are failures on many, many sides, yeah.
1: There are no good guys in this story.
0: There are no good guys, but there's no also truly easily discernible bad guy. Mm. There's, not, there's not someone who's going to get all the votes when you dig into this, because there seems to be an absolute failure of corporate governance on the side of Nissan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, you hit the nail on the head here. And I think this is true when you dig, really dig into any true story, any non-truly non truly nonfiction story about things like this. It's, it's, there are very few good guys, very few bad guys. There's a lot of arrogant people. Yeah, That's the case with
2: most CEOs,
1: right? Yeah, there well, and also there was this perception just to pick out one aspect of it on sure. the compensation side of things. There was this perception within, you know, Nissan and the group of people who were trying to get Carlos going a lot more money that in Japan, yeah, sure, their declared cash compensation is low, but, you know, Japanese CEOs have a host of fringe benefits. Yes. And this sort of thinking that everybody does this is what gets a lot of people in trouble for white-collar crimes around the world. And so there's, in that sense, what happened within Nissan is not unique, but you're absolutely correct. That, that Carlos Ghosn has has spent a lot of time after his arrest, and a lot of his defenders have done so too, saying, you know, it is ludicrous to think that Carlos Ghosn would somehow orchestrate a plan to pay himself a huge amount of money after retirement, and that the board would be unaware, or that senior executives within Nissan would be unaware. But, you know, there's a certain ingenuity of, about that argument, and that, you know, Carlos Ghosn had created a system by which nobody knew what he was paid
0: <laughs> for a number true. of
1: years. And that he had,
0: but know, I just want to make a correction. He didn't create the system, that's a legal system under Japanese law, right?
1: Yeah, it's legal, but you know, the, the mechanism by which you know Carlos Ghosn determined his own compensation is unusual, even in Japan.
2: Yeah, we don't uh, even know that, what that is, to be fair.
1: Yeah, I mean, the fact that Carlos Ghosn would annually decide how much Carlos Ghosn was paid is, is an unusual scenario, even for Japan, yes. it was not illegal. So long as his compensation was declared publicly, the company could use whatever means it thought fit to determine how much Carlos Gon was worth.
0: Yeah, to me, it seems as if, if Nissan and the board could have made a better case to explain why Carlos Ghosn was worth what he is being paid, a lot of this would never have happened.
1: You know what? I've had this conversation and I've asked senior executives at Nissan and you know, a lot of people involved in this you know what would have happened if carlos gone had gone to shareholders and gone to his fellow board members and said look i'm worth 30 million dollars a year pay me that or i'm going to go work for gm what would happen and they say he would have been paid 30 million dollars a year like the company would have backed him up on this but the the person who didn't want to fight for it was carlos
0: yes i mean that that that's he didn't want to have to make that argument that's the kicker here because it went against the culture and the image he had created for himself. And at the same time, if you look at the amount of value that's been destroyed by not being public about it, I mean, it's just the cost-benefit analysis seems clear, right? In hindsight that you should have gone public, should have got the backing, but bad decisions on many sides. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And look, say what you will about CEOs that make 100 million hundred millions of dollars a year, like at least they go to the shareholders and say I'm worth it. Yeah, you know? they take the heat. Like they take the heat, and that you know Carlos Ghosn wanted it both ways, and I think that's part of what got him in trouble.
0: Yeah, I mean it comes back to the point we were making earlier, and I think you said it well. It's just a in a culture where trust seems to be so central. There was a it's almost a personal betrayal.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that was a lot of the the shock within the rank and file of Nissan, and you know, in sort of Japanese society as a whole, is that. I mean, still to this day, I think what Carlos Ghosn actually did is poorly understood by most people. You know, yes, the, I some people that. think it was, it was a tax evasion. Some people say, think that, you know, he somehow got this extra money in his bank account and, you know, just didn't tell shareholders and didn't tell tax authorities and didn't tell regulators or that he stole a bunch of money from corporate coffers. Like, that's not what happened. And it is way more complicated than that.
0: But I do have to ask a question. It's a very technical question, but I'm going to ask it because I'm not that familiar with the Japanese judicial system. So Mm -hmm. when Carlos Ghosn and his team, I think you mentioned Greg Kelly, Mm -hmm. was setting up the plan to defer his compensation. Had his compensation actually been deferred at that point, or were they still planning? So that was the entirety of the legal
1: debate, right? Was it deferred compensation or not? And Carlos Ghosn's position and Greg Kelly's position is that it was not deferred compensation. Not only was it not deferred compensation, because the, the finalized version of the close to finalized version of the plan was that he would be paid a consultancy fee after retirement so that it was not deferred compensation and the prosecutor's argument and and the people who are accusing going within nissan their argument was that it was a fig leaf for compensation because you cannot defer compensation without disclosing it in japan
0: but it hadn't um, been deferred yet, right? There was a plan. Had, no, again. it
1: had so yeah. So Greg Kelly's argument, because we only really know Greg Kelly's argument in full because Gone wasn't here for the trial. Greg Kelly's argument was that look, like it was literally impossible for me to defer the compensation or to finalize this post retirement compensation plan, even if you think of it as a consultancy agreement, is because he can retire. Like, what could we have set and determined in terms of compensation for Gone after retirement? Like, unless it was actually deferred compensation, none of this could have been set and determined because you can't actually sign a post retirement consultancy agreement in Japan legally, unless, you know, he had already retired. So again, like, it was a weird debate on the finer points of, you know, the law, it, the trial. But ultimately, what it came down to was that the Nissan head of HR and a a couple other executives within Nissan were working at ways to to come up with a plan to throw a large wad of cash at Carlos Ghosn, saying that when you retire, we're going to give you this, we'll sign it right away, don't go anywhere, sort of thing.
0: It sounds like a very strange point, but if they didn't sign it, there's nothing there, right?
1: Look, in Carlos Ghosn's argument, and it's true. If Carlos Ghosn had died the day before he retired, his family There's would no have no deferred nothing.
0: compensation, exactly. Yeah, so, he, would
1: have, he would have gotten paid anything.
0: And the thing about business is always comes down to the finer points of the law. That's one thing I've learned in my entire career. And I obviously know a lot less about this than you know. But at least on the deferred compensation side, it sounds like there was a plan to defer compensation, but there was no deferred compensation. On the kickback to Oman, I mean, I don't know what's going on there, but that sounds like something that needs to be explored further. But I think the point to be made here is that after the escape, none of this matters, does it?
1: No. None of this matters. I mean, look, like, and honestly, even if we never get an answer to whether or not Carlos Ghosn committed a crime, like, it's an important question, right? It's the lens through which we judge good and bad as a society. At that point, I get. But, like, ultimately, if we had never learned, he still did these things absent of a criminal charge. And I think looking at those, like, those actions is incredibly revealing about Carlos Ghosn the man and the failings, as you put it, of corporate governance within Nissan is just a a sort of a Shakespearean parable of the perils of bad governance within a company. You know, there's a lot that I think any company can can take away from this.
0: You make a good point. I mean, as a CEO, you want to be transparent. I mean, that's your currency, right? Once you lose that transparency and trust with the public constituents, you don't really have much. So irrespective of the nuances of whether or not it was deferred or not, the actions on Carlos Ghosn's side could have been better. But I find it quite ironic that he went from a Japanese prison to effectively being a prisoner in a house in Beirut.
1: Yeah, and my colleague Nick had the opportunity to ask him the question, you know, was it worth it? That he traded a shot of clearing his name at trial for sort of a half freedom of living in essentially exile in a gilded prison in Lebanon. And he says, absolutely. And I think one of the the important aspects of the Carlos Ghosn tale that we haven't quite touched on yet is the whole Japanese judicial system.
0: Oh, yes. I've heard about it. There's like a 90% conviction rate or something.
1: 99 point, uh, depending on the calculation, 6 or 8% conviction rate. Okay. Um, So
0: basically, if they go after you, they're going to get you.
1: Yeah. A contested case, like Japanese prosecutors, by their own statistics, win over 99% of their cases. And there's a couple of reasons why that happens or, or a couple of theories about why that happens. And on the Japanese prosecutor side of things, what they say is we're just really good at picking only the, the guilty parties out of, the, out of a
2: lineup.
0: So they go for the um, easy cases. Yeah. I want to make a point on this, uh, and Sean, because uh-huh. you kind of set me up for this.
2: Mm-hmm. But if
0: that's true, why is it – if they only pick the easy cases, why is it so hard for us to know if Carlos Ghosn did something wrong? <laughs>
1: Well, look, and this is Carlos Ghosn's point, right? Is that it defies belief um, in a sort of Kim Jong Il uh, winning ninety eight percent of the yeah. democratic vote of North <laughs> Korea that, like, that this could be an accurate statistic without any sort of malfeasance. And there's a lot of criticisms of the Japanese justice system, and the term they use is hostage justice. Yes. And what hostage justice is is the system in Japan where it is very difficult to obtain bail before trial and the critics say that holding a bail puts prosecutors in the system of of extreme authority over the accused where they are in prison oftentimes in solitary confinement 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 in these sort of strict confinement situations where you basically have to sit on the floor with your back against the wall in this l shape all day except for when you are being interrogated by prosecutors and in Carlos Ghosn's case, it was up to 12 hours a day, every day of the week, seven days a week, without the ability to have your defense counsel present during those interrogations. And there's just this pressure to confess that, you know, if you want to yeah. get out of here, you want this to end, you want to get back onto to society, there's an easy way to do that. Just tell us you did it. Um, and that is what they call the hostage justice system. And it was the criticism that Carlos Ghosn uh, made against the system. And frankly, it was something that, you know, even people who live here like me were vaguely aware of. But, you know, it was just incredible to see a guy like Carlos Gone imprisoned for over a hundred days, questioned yes. without the ability to have legal counsel during the interrogations. And that nobody seemed to bat annihilate at this and that this was just perfectly fine for for something like a white collar offense, like a essentially what boiled down to a paperwork violation. It was and just it, a, a crazy thing.
0: So it's very different from the common law system in Hong Kong and the way rights for, for that prisoners in this case, but accused. It's a very different system.
1: It is a very different system. And, and Carlos Ghosn, and one of the reasons why he said it was worth it for him to leave is that he was a 65 year old man chasing yes. a long odds at an acquittal and a legal battle that would have taken. By his calculation, over ten years,
0: probably ten
2: millions as well.
1: A lot of money, depending on you know how good your how good your lawyers are and how expensive yeah. they are, it would have cost him a lot of money. And and so in Carlos Gold's mind, win, lose, or draw, he was going to come out of this probably a dead man or with nothing left of his life. And there is something to do that because I mean, the first set of charges, which I think are arguably less uh, serious, about surrounding the. Whether or not Carlos Ghosn intended to pay himself deferred compensation was a process that took three years to get a verdict on. Yes. And that was the easy part. He was facing the much more complicated trial over the Oman uh, related issues. Yeah. So it is feasible that after appeals and everything else like that, he was facing a 10 year legal
0: battle. And you know, it is the 20th anniversary of the collapse of Enron. And I remember when Anderson was, and Arthur Anderson was indicted. Mm. But they went on to be acquitted by a judge eventually, I think about four or five years later. So Mm. I think the point you're making is very true here, that it's a long process, and he had to balance that out against what he was going to go through, even if he turned out to be innocent.
2: And
1: and there is a sort of fascinating part of it, of how this ended up, that that really sort of permeates Carlos Ghosn's character throughout the book. That Carlos Ghosn's great success as an executive came from his ability to analyze a problem with a cold logic, and rather than seeing the reasons why you can't get something done, to see the solution. Yes. And Carlos Ghosn saw the long odds at an acquittal and the fact that it would have been a realistically a decade long legal fight, and he said, "I'm not doing that. I am going to just leave." <laughs> and so, yes, a <laughs> suit. Soon- Very soon after the charges on Oman and Carlos Ghosn's release for a second time on bail, he uh, begins planning the escape. That was almost immediately what he started doing.
0: Fascinating. Nishan, one thing I'm going to compliment you on and commend you on. What I like about the way you have structured the book and your reporting on this is that you have basically only followed the facts as opposed to picking a narrative in advance. And pursuing it. Because then when you have this conversation, it's very clear there's so many sides to this. And we're probably never going to figure out what happened, but there's no clear bad person here. It just seems as if a lot of bad decisions were made, and a lot of people need to self-reflect and fix things. So I commend you for that style of writing and the objectivity.
1: Yeah. And I think there's a lot of things that Carlos Ghosn did that look an awful like look awful like crimes yes and there's certainly a lot of people who who should be held to account for their actions so it's not like we should you know sort of attribute this to some faceless corporation being yes. run improperly there's a lot of individuals who who should be held accountable for the actions they did including carlos Ghosn. but you're right like the goal of this book was not to indict Carlos Ghosn, and the goal of the book was not to to adjudicate guilt or innocence on the on on the part of any parties. It was really to sort of examine his life for us to understand the most baffling aspect of Carlos Ghosn's tale is yeah. why anybody would think it's a good idea to gamble what ultimately is a forty year legacy of excellent track record and superlative success for a couple million dollars it's just it's not something any reasonable human being would do
0: yeah that's the part i don't get because he's done something i think no one has done he's a foreigner who made it to the top of corporate japan
1: yeah it's very very rare rare. and most japanese people didn't think he could do it that was part of his legend is that he sort of defied what was an accepted truth is that foreigners couldn't run a japanese company and he proved them wrong
0: yes and he did a very good job and if you look at the wealth that's been destroyed and jobs lost. It's a sad tale all around, but you've made it very entertaining, Sean. I want to thank you for what's going to be, I think, one of our best podcasts that we're going to put out. It's a fascinating story. And I love the way you analyze and stitch all the pieces together. So I want to thank you for that.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation.
0: Have a great day in Tokyo, and we'll definitely speak soon. Take care. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.